MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Flom. Since I began recording Wrongful Conviction back in 2016, I've interviewed hundreds of exonerees, but unfortunately, that's just the tip of the criminal injustice iceberg. So I've invited new voices to host the show, including people who have personally experienced the horror of that system. This is one of those interviews. It's July 4th, 2002, and 36-year-old Tony Cox is meeting up with Richard Arrigo, the owner of Fat Albert's, a restaurant on the west side of Chicago. They lead the restaurant together. Arrigo turns to lock the door behind him, and that's when he hears two gunshots. Tony Cox is shot dead. Arrigo stands at a close distance to the shooters, but he doesn't recognize them as they flee the scene. Two women witness the crime from their cars. Both of them call 911 and both would later be asked to identify the shooters from photographs, even though they barely had time to see them. Chicago police officers Gregory Jones, Eugene Schletter, and James Sanchez investigated the murder. And they believe it had to be gang-related because Tony Cox was a member of the local gang, the New Breeds. At first, they investigated New Breed members, but made no arrests. But within a month of the crime, for reasons that are still unknown, they turned their attention to Eric Blackman. On the day of the murder, Eric was hosting a barbecue, and between 20 and 40 people saw him there. Two months later in September, Eric showed up at court to deal with an unrelated misdemeanor charge. But the police arrested him there on the spot as he entered the courthouse. Despite having dozens of alibi witnesses and no connection to the victim, Eric Blackman was found guilty of murdering Tony Cox on September 27, 2004. He was sentenced to 60 years in prison. This is Wrongful Conviction. My name is Patrick Persley. 
also known as Free Patrick Pursley. I've been a guest on this show to talk about my own wrongful conviction, but now I'm here as your guest host. In April 2022, I had the honor of sitting down with Eric Blackman to talk about his incredible story. Today I have a very distinguished guest, a friend, a brother, a fellow exoneree, a very positive person, someone I've known for more than a decade, um, Eric Blackman. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I definitely, definitely appreciate you being here. And we knew each other a lot longer than a decade. At least, at least a decade. Yeah, about 15 to 20 years, though, when I really think about it. We were at Stateville together? Yeah, Stateville, yeah. I know you've come a long way, and you've done a lot. You've really done a lot to save your own life. Did you ever face any criticism where they say, like, you jailhouse lawyer, know how to get everybody out but yourself? You never heard that one? Yeah, in a way, people think that way. Or one of the biggest criticisms is people will tell y'all, man, that petition will never work. Oh, yeah. You know, hey, that, that'd be what you get a lot uh, sometimes. And I heard a lot about the very petition that got me here. So I really, you know, you just really got to go on with what you research and how you feel and what you believe in. And if it's right, you just hope that a court ends up seeing it that way, you know, contrary to what anybody else may say. So where where are you from? Um, I'm from the west side of Chicago. I was born and raised there. Yeah. Was it dangerous? Very much like any other place. It was, um, you know, uh, ripple with gangs, drugs, violence. You know what I'm saying? It was, you know, it was just things that were around. You know, you do your best to stay away from it, but it's there. Things that you see every day. In Eric's neighborhood, gang violence and drugs went hand in hand with police brutality. In our neighborhood, they came up with this, what they called, what was later called the Black Site, which is a home and square police station. It was this station where people would be disappeared, where you would go and you would hear the stories of people riding past, hearing screams at night. But it was just a place where people, where all of your rights was just violated. People would just go in there and people wouldn't hear from for long periods of time and people were arrested and held and it would later reveal that people were you know unconstitutionally held there at that jail now people have to remember the setting in chicago in the late 90s you know they had record amounts of murders and you have these cadres of police who are basically acting outside of the law People would be amazed the level of brutality that is leveled against someone being interrogated who is nine out of ten times a young black male. A 2015 investigation by The Guardian revealed that the Homan Square facility had detained and interrogated more than 7,000 people in Chicago since 1995. An estimated 80% of those people were black and only a handful were allowed legal representation. You know, it's like, hey, you hear about these things and you know people and you, so, you know, it's very much real, like the boogeyman. On July 4th, 2002, you have um, Tony Cox in Cook County, Illinois. Um, He's shot to death. Um, There's witnesses, people driving down the street, at least two or three of those. There's someone next door in barbershop, two people. Um, there's kind of, according to the record, it's like this strange meetup, right? He gets a message like, uh, meet in front of Fat Alberts or meet at Fat Alberts. He meets Richard Rigo. 
I believe they conversate inside the restaurant for about 20 minutes and um, they're exiting a restaurant to people pop up and shoot um, Tony Cox dead. I believe that's that's the state's that was the state's case, I believe. Yeah, that is what they uh, ultimately, you know, presented at court as to being what actually happened that day. I know when the shooting happened, there was uh, like a handful of witnesses from your record or from like where some things that were saying about the actual shooter. I know they um, had made 911 calls or. Um, according to the record, Frenchon Reese and Lisa McDowell were uh, two people who were driving past the crime. They both were stopped at this um, same light. Uh, at just different viewpoints. Yeah, yeah. Both one was heading north, the other were heading south, but they were both at, you know, on opposite sides of the same light. According to Miss Frenchon Reese, the light turned green. She see these people standing up a half a block in front of her. The light turns green and she proceeds up. She sees one of these men shoot the other. Um, Do you recall like her identification, what like description um, of the shooter? She gave a description. I can't recall, but it wasn't a description that fit me. I believe her description was somebody like 5'10", 30s, 20s, 30s. I was a teen then, but it was something that definitely didn't fit me. I'm 6'4". Um, I was a teenager at the time. So, you know, it was a very far cry from who I am. Now, Miss McDowell says that she was still there and... When the crime happened, she heard the shots, looked over, her and the kids were in the car. She seen this person or somebody, two people come around the building and walk up on this man that was already on the ground, where she seen the white man who we suspected. She was saying Mr. Rigo had a gun. Right. Um, she actually puts a gun in Rigo's hand. Yeah, that's what she did uh, in her initial statement to the police. Sometime later, she would go on to change that. It really caught a lot of people's eye because, like, if what she's saying is true, then Mr. Rigo was not a witness. He was a participant in this crime. You know what I'm saying? I'm not sure of everything that happened or what the actual, you know, uh, relationship or what actually went on. It was a lot of questions around what actually happened and who was actually involved that day. You know, a lot of cases take a lot of twists and turns, and, but your case is almost like a direct like a direct shot, like you're at a, you're, you're hosting a party, right? And, you know, like you're barbecuing, it's July 4th, everyone out there, right? So you got 20 to 40 witnesses, right? That, yeah, can you tell me was, about that? Well, um, we threw a barbecue, uh, myself and some friends and I, um, over on the block where we normally hung. And we were out there um, throughout that afternoon, uh, the time that they say this murder happened to occur, we were definitely out there. I had dozen to two dozen people that could verify where I was. How the how the hell they tie you? What like how they drag you in? You know, I don't know. That's something I don't know to this day. How I ever became a suspect? How I I had no link to the gang, no ties. I wasn't a part of that gang or any gang for that matter. Uh. I'm not sure. And to this day, and that's still the a question. Victim. No, I never had any dealings with the victim or anybody that was allegedly involved in this crime. I knew nothing. So how did they, like, effectuate the arrest? Like, how was it the same day or nah. later? Um, no, sir. I was arrested, like, months later. I believe it was, like, two months. I got arrested September the 5th. 
of that year, which is exactly like two months later. In between the time of um, the murder and my actual arrest, which was a couple of months, I had been arrested for uh, some type of disorderly conduct or gambling or something like that. You know, in our neighborhood, the police, you know, swoop you up no, for loitering. reason. Yeah, loitering or those type of things. out here on these blocks. And it's not a real big infraction. It's an infraction that you normally go to like a misdemeanor court or something for, and they just throw it out normally in my neighborhood. It's just a way to ring up guys. And yeah, it's almost quotas. like a taxation. Yeah, it's right? a field it's, quotas type of thing. Yeah, they make a lot of great arrests. Let everybody know who's in charge. Yeah, basically. And We're Chicago PD. You're going to respect our authority. Yeah, really. That's definitely I what know. I already know. So, um, so I get one of those. It was nothing major. I didn't do anything. So this particular morning of my arrest, September the 4th, was the day I actually had court for this um, offense. So I go there, same way I would. You have a court date, nothing to miss. When I walk in the building, police uh, are there. These aren't the regular police. These are like the tactical guys. They're waiting on you? Yeah, they're waiting there. As soon as I go through the metal detector, they ask like, so what's your name? And I tell them my name and these officers grab me and rough me, you know, you know how they do. You know what yes, I'm saying? The take so down. Rough, yeah, the, the thing, takedown. Yeah, the extra. And, the yeah. extra hands on. Yeah, so it's a grab you up. And I'm like, for what? You know, what y'all grabbing me for? My attorney's right in the courtroom. So the whole thing was to prevent me from getting a chance to notify my attorney. When they of as, oh, that's that's something else, too, because if they know you have an attorney, they're not supposed to ask you nothing. Well, right. But they knew my attorney was there in their courtroom. Um, I was going to court. He was there. You know, there's usually... Um, a very clear path to why the police pick somebody, right? Uh, one of the things that I hear a lot from people who have not lived the um, life that we have lived is like, come on, what do they do? Just pick your name out of a hat? I could never figure out in your case, like, how, how the hell did they pick you, you know? Um, that's still a mystery to this day uh, for me, just as well as my legal team going forward. I can't really tell you why they picked me out. I don't know. That would That's something that baffles me to this day. Even when you aren't guilty and you know you haven't done anything, you still question yourself like, why me? Why the hell did I, what could I have done differently? Or like... And to this day, like, I question myself about that. I don't know what I could have done differently because I don't know anything in regards to what happened that day. This episode is sponsored by the AIG Pro Bono Program. AIG is a leading global insurance company, and the AIG Pro Bono program provides free legal services as well as other support to many nonprofit organizations as well as individuals who are most in need. And they recently announced that working to reform the criminal justice system will become a key pillar of the program's mission. The police arrested Eric without a warrant, and they took him to the station. But he has no idea what's going on. You can imagine just being dragged away from your family, dragged away from your house. And the police took their time in telling him what this was all about. Eventually, they tell me that I'm there for murder. Only thing I could tell you is that's like the most earth-shaking, earth-shattering, like, 
moment that I could tell you, you know, it was like, you know, hearing the record, you know, stop, Everything like stops. murder. Yeah, murder. I never been nobody accused of nothing remotely like that. Now it's like, hold on. They tell you murder and they leave out again and they leave you for a while. Let now they come in. Yeah. 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 Then they come back in and they like, OK, you want to tell us what happened now? And I don't know what happened. And I'm denying and they're steady try to do it, you know, uh, hey, well, maybe it didn't happen this way. Maybe it happened that way. Try to get your know way you out. Weren't, yeah, we know you weren't the person. And those are things that they go out, go over. They say and do a lot of different things throughout those three days. It really was like I never been so broke down and so dejected and so defeated in my life. I'll just say that, like just being in that just having people constantly yell and badger you and tell you and talk to you like you the lowest, dirtiest thing in the world and accuse you of doing something like so horrific. You know, it just shatters you. It broke me. I was a 19-year-old kid. I never went through nothing like that before. I was just, you know, I was scared. I was defeated. I was hurt. I, I didn't know. And like, man, you just don't know what to do in that situation. Man, you a kid in there, man. The stuff that those grown men subject kids to, like in that, like, you know what I'm saying? One of the detectives on this case was James Sanchez. And since all this happened, he got promoted to commander, despite having at least 90 formal complaints of misconduct against him. So, yeah, this is this character right here. He's the one actually interrogating Eric. Um, yeah, Mr. Sanchez, like, I called him out his name. I cursed at him. He said something to me. I cursed at him. He, like, gave my ass a nice one, you know, to one the face. Oh, yeah, or just, just a quick nice jab. one to the face. Yeah, yeah. Let you know he it means me business. Yeah, yeah, he got his point across. I, yeah. I ain't say that no more. After his interrogation, he waited for his trial behind bars in Cook County Jail for two years. Being stuck in that place is one of the most dreadful, I know. decrepit, dilapidated places that you could ever throw so many people in. is rats, roaches, knives, violence, gangs, if you name it. You get tyrannical police officers or corrections officers that would just do whatever. Like, it was rough. I seen people beat, stabbed, if you name it choked, strangled. I seen all kind of things like happen to people that I seen one guy like set on fire. Like it's some of the things that you wake up to when you have nowhere to go, nowhere to run. You just stuck. You just there. So by the time you get to trial, it's almost like it's almost like a relief. What is the state's like? What's their case in chief? What do they present? Um, Well, we start trial about two years later and the state's whole case in chief was the identifications of Miss McDowell and Miss Reese. And that was the only thing. Um, I'll never forget it. Miss Frenchon Reese testified to seeing the offender's face for probably four to five seconds. Miss McDowell testified to seeing it only for like two or three. Before trial, Eric and his mother put together a list of potential alibi witnesses that could confirm he was at the 4th of July barbecue and not down at Fat Albert's restaurant where the crime was committed. My mom made the calls to two people that day uh, 
to ultimately come to my trial and testify. And my defense with those two alibi witnesses, two of the people two from the party. 20 or 40. Yeah, that he hadn't even spoken to until, my trial attorney hadn't even spoken to until that morning that they showed so up to testify. So you're waiting for trial, just for the record, you're waiting for trial two years and he hasn't even spoke to two witnesses nah. but the few hours before trial. Yeah, according to them, um, that is beyond. The first time they ever met or spoke with him was like, and it wasn't even hours. He spoke to them like probably for a short period prior to them getting on the stand. I kind of felt like, okay, um, not really okay, but I know I got an alibi. I know I got a bunch of people that know where I was. You know, I just know that this is a mistake, that this would be straightened out. But the lawyer. He he doesn't really follow up. He didn't. Um, the police didn't follow up. No. The lawyer didn't follow up. At that point, I was a layman. I knew nothing about the law going in. I didn't. It's like you're really learning as you go along. And the sad part is you're learning with your life. Yeah, no and, room for error. Yeah, no room for error. Before his trial, Eric's attorney convinced him to take a bench trial. In a jury trial, you pick your 12 jurors. However, in a bench trial, the judge is the sole trier of fact. He's the one who hears the evidence and determines guilt or innocence. So you're putting all your eggs in one basket. He said that in my situation, it was better to go. And he definitely convinced me. He gave me a lot of different reasons. And like, and I really didn't want to go. Like, I really didn't want it. But like, you a kid. It's your first time going right. through this. No Who would you listen to other than the person that's supposed to defend you, your attorney? An attorney and his client are in a fiduciary relationship. He's supposed to look out for your best interests. He's supposed to defend you zealously. In retrospect, as a jailhouse lawyer, I could tell you, taking a bench trial is a terrible idea. It closes out a bunch of chances for your appeal to be heard because a lot of the issues actually become non-issues because the judge is presumed to know the law. But Eric, he didn't know this at the time. He was just a kid. On September 27, the judge found Eric Blackman guilty of murder and was sentenced to 60 years in prison. i never forget my mom was in that courtroom and like just the shriek that she let out was like, that's something i never forget because we know I hadn't done it. Everybody knew it. Everybody, the whole neighborhood, everybody, the police, they even knew, even when they were saying it in that room, they knew that I hadn't done it. They knew it, but they told me, go send your ass to jail, you're going to go through all of this. And those things played through my mind. What was going to happen when I got to the penitentiary? My kids, my family, hearing that guilty verdict was like single-handedly one of the worst if not the worst day of my life ever. Just knowing I didn't do it, it was hard to sleep at night. I, could, I couldn't, I couldn't rest, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat. I thought about killing myself so many times, even tried once.
The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Do you love Selena? Like, really love Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stan the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. By the time I met Eric, he was working hard to save his own life. I met him in a law library, and he was deep, deep into books, trying to learn everything he could to get himself out of there. I think you were the one that told me, because I used to tell everybody, pro se gets no play. Like, that's like one of my things. Like, you represent yourself, forget about it, right? So you, I think you were the first one that told me, uh-uh-uh, <laughs> right? And I was like, man, like, what you mean, uh-uh-uh? If I ain't got a lawyer, I ain't getting out of jail. So you filed stuff yourself and actually got some type of rhythm, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, not at first, obviously, right? So, Yeah, we went through um, the process, and I went through – um, the direct appeal process, the post-conviction process, that was denied. Both of those were denied. The next step for Eric was to appeal to the federal courts with a writ of habeas corpus, a petition that claims you've been in prison in violation of your constitutional rights. And it's your first and last federal appeal. The only time that the federal courts will ever look at a conviction or overturn the conviction is if the state courts did not convict you correctly according to federal law, the U.S. constitutional law. So basically you have to find not only that they were wrong, but they have to be more than wrong. They had to be so egregious as to where, like, I mean, it's a high bar to pass. You have to ask the district judge, the guy who smashes you in the head, give me a letter that you did me wrong so I can take it to your boss. Yeah, so you ask him to reconsider his decision. If he doesn't, then, 
you have to file what they call a certificate of appealability to him. And that's where you have to get him or her to say where they were wrong, which they very, very rarely do. We get to the point where the certificate of appealability is granted, and I get these great attorneys, Ann Redell and David P. Crone. I appreciate them so much because after what I had been through with the first attorney, I gave them hell. And it wasn't intentionally. It was just because. Trust. Yeah, that was my life. I had been my baby for so long. I finally had got some, you know, and I just couldn't give it up. You know what I'm saying? So you go through it and like, man, they were the best attorneys that I ever could have asked for. Those people understood and they loved me like even when I was an ass, when I was wrong. I had badgered them about what they were going to argue, what you going to say, you know, say it like this. Lawyers do not like to be told how to do their job. Hey, look, I mean, hey, I was the only person that was going to go back and do that time at the end of the day. So the judge say, hey, we get to go back. We are elated. But another problem presents itself. I had been in jail at that point so long. Money's depleted. Don't have many people around to help. Um, you have a new trial. You have a new case. What you're going to do? How do you proceed going forward? And uh, Mr. Crone, he was like, hey, we got a few options. And one of those options was we could see if the CWC, the Center on Wrongful Convictions, would be willing to take your case. I told them, yeah, right, you can do whatever you want, but I asked them out, <laughs> and they said no. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, like, good luck with that. Yeah, so, you know, we come, we have this attorney meeting, and I see these other new faces I'd never seen. This one little small, wildly little woman, like, she barely stood over the table, like, and she was like, hey, I'm Cameron Daniels. And she was like, yeah, so we are going to be, you know, here and taking your case and we're looking forward to working with you. And the first thing I said was when she got finished was like, hey, but y'all told me no before. Why you tell me no before? <laughs> and like I was just sitting there intently waiting on the answer. And she didn't say anything. She just gave me that mother look and looked at the paper and slid it to me. And I signed that paper. And that was one of the best things that I've ever done for my life. And that lawyer was Karen Daniel. May she rest in peace. She was a renowned wrongful convictions attorney who at the time was a co-director of the Center for Wrongful Convictions. She and the students she supervised won more than 20 exoneration cases during her career. She was a great woman, a real hero who helped me out when I was lost in the airport coming from Georgia and she really didn't even know me. She died in a tragic hit-and-run car crash in 2020, a loss that's felt deeply across the Innocence Movement community. She's like my second mother. I often tell people like that. Uh, she the one who gave me my second birth, who gave me my second life. So to me, like, yeah, she was like my mother. Uh, and she just did so much, like, in a way for this community. If she didn't work your case that didn't get you an attorney, she made some precedent that you ultimately ended up using and everybody benefited from her. Eric and his new team of lawyers brought his case to the U.S. Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. 
Judge Ronald Guzman granted Eric's petition for a writ of habeas corpus, and he was let out of prison on bond pending a retrial, actually the same day I got out. I was living life very barely because you always hear the, you know, in position that maybe you may go back. You know what I'm saying? You knew what it was like. You know, it, it was always hanging there. It's like walking around with that black cloud or that anvil over your head, just waiting for it to drop. And you didn't know what it would be. You know, I know that I hadn't done anything, but I know I hadn't done anything, you know, the first time. And um, I believe it's the fall case that says even an innocent man still uh, faces a 50-50 chance if he goes to trial. So. I knew what my chances were. I didn't want to go back to jail, um, but I knew what I had to do. Like, we still had that hurdle to get across. I was scared as hell, and I wanted to prolong it as long as I could, but then that really wasn't a viable thought. So I told my attorneys to let's demand trial. It was six months after I got out, and we demanded trial. And uh, when it came time, they decided not to proceed. They dropped the charges. Then comes the celebration. Nah, not really. Because it was anticlimactic. You think it's going to be over with then. You think like, hey, life is great. You know, a lot of us think that that would be the end of the movie, right? <laughs> no, it's not. Nah, but it's just the beginning because I had that thing for like more than half of my life. I didn't really know like how to live without it, like, in a way. Plus, it it's was a different of, era. We come home to a different era. Yeah. It's a different world. Yeah, it really is. But then, you you know, you really just, like, wake up and you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to go through it anymore. But it's like, I don't know. I, I don't even remember the point to where I didn't have to go through it. So, it's like, wow. It becomes our life. Right. It becomes almost like which we're defined by. Like you actually become a success story. Just like you start working CWC, right? You, what is that like? Where's the sweet part like in your work? And you know what I mean? Like I tell people like this, um, I guess the great sweet spot is that you still get a chance to work on trying to ultimately correct the system or not allow whatever happened to me to happen to the next person. You know, that's the part that gets up and keep me driving, you know, keeps me going. At the same time, it's like going back to visit your tormentor over and, and over, over and, and over again. Because every time you pick up a case, it takes you right back to that spot for you. Every time I go to the court, you know, and I'm good, I'm great therapy everything but sometimes that same fear creeps back as that first day when i was standing in there and yeah you know, I, I already know it's that guilty day it's, so it's, it's all consuming it's yeah, all consuming yeah so I there's mean, not a day that i don't have a stateville reference there's not a single day yeah. that i am not back there what i yeah. want to ask you though is what would you invite the audience how can they help you or something that's near and dear to your heart, right? Your, what is your call to action? I guess my personal call to action is to keep fighting, is to keep on trying to do things to make our justice system better. I know people might say that we have like a great justice system, but I tell people much like Dr. King once said that a 
injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So if one person is in jail wrongfully or if one person is over sentenced, then it runs the it runs the chance of it happening to two and three and four and five and so more to where it'll become the norm. And I look at so many people that are sentenced today and I see a lot of people over sentence. We're punitively punishing people consistently. Like, and what I mean by that is, yeah, people make mistakes, people commit crimes, but do we take their lives like for every infraction? We have more people slated to die in prison now than at any point in time before. So when I say to people, yeah, you could say somebody committed a crime or whatever, I say to you, so what do we do? Do we take the life from them? And to the people that say, yeah, I'll just say, hey, what about that red stop sign that you ran? What about that <laughs> red light you ran? Judge not. What penalty should you get? You know, I work with a lot of different orgs. So the first thing is I work for the MacArthur Justice Center, which is a civil, a civil entity that sues for people like us and other people who, you know, uh, face any civil rights violation. We do things like voters' rights, prisoner rights, solitary, um, wrongful convictions, wrongful death, police shootings, and those type of things. So these are the things that I feel are really near and dear to me, being a chance to right the system. I also work for the uh, Chicago Torture Justice Center, which works on uh, basically trying to make sure that all of the Burge, the John Burge torture victims, you know, uh, get justice in their cases. And I sit on the board for that. And I also sit on the board for another org called uh, the Justice Renewal Initiative, where we try to give jobs to youth that are, you know, uh, disadvantaged and targeted or, you know, return to citizens. And we try our best to work with youth um, on that front to ultimately help them. You know, yeah, so they don't go through life. what we went through. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's very important. So we'll have those uh, links to those organizations in the bio. Hopefully everyone will check them out. Um, you get the final word, this closing arguments. I really, 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 truly want to thank you for um, letting me tell your story. Uh, I really commend you. You're a survivor. Thanks. I guess I'll take this time to just um, thank the people that helped me to get to this point, help me get freedom, help me be sitting here with you all. I don't think that I get a chance to say that or thank you and just tell those people how much they meant. How much every little thing that they ever did helped me. I thank all of those people and and I just like to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you, I don't think I can say it enough. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom and Kevin Wardis. The senior producer for this episode is Jackie Polly, and our producers are Lila Robinson, Connor Hall, and Jeff Clyburn. Our editor is Roxander Guidi, and special thanks to Jillian Forstad for help on this episode. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Free Patrick Persley at I Am Kid Culture 2 and online at IamKidCulture.org. 
Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lawful for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Tune in next week for the third and final episode of Wrongful Conviction, where Patrick Persley plays the host. And Patrick, this time, is going to interview Jarvis Ballard about their tragic shared experience. Now, both of them are innocent men who spent decades behind bars. And in this intimate and highly emotional episode, they're going to talk about the lies that landed Jarvis in prison and the patterns of misconduct that play in so many wrongful conviction cases just like theirs. Now, Patrick met Jarvis the same time I did, which was at this year's Innocence Network conference in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Both of us were immediately taken by this larger-than-life character. This guy just got out of prison after two decades, and he's there representing himself in such a powerful way. So these guys bonded immediately. It was an honor for me to be able to facilitate their connection and to have Patrick on the mic, in my chair, interviewing Jarvis, it just means the world to me. So tune in, listen next Monday in the Wrongful Conviction podcast feed. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.